Welcome to Le Flaneur Politique with Dr. Michael DePercy. Don't forget to check out the show notes at politicalscience.com.au. At the recent Democracy 100 Forum at Old Parliament House, hosted by the Institute for Governance and Policy Analysis, Bob Hawke and John Howard spoke about the present lack of appetite for reform, and Peter Harcher's report of this event captured some interesting thoughts. In effect, Bob Hawke and John Howard handled some of the largest reform agendas in Commonwealth history, particularly in market and tax reform, yet they were re-elected to become two of our three longest-serving Prime Ministers. So I took the opportunity to speak with Michelle Grattan about this in Parliament House, and when you listen to this podcast, you can hear the division bells for the Senate sounding in the background. Today I'd like to talk about uh, bipartisanship and populism, and Michelle Grattan has uh, agreed to join me. And today I'm going to be looking at uh, the question, is bipartisanship possible in establishing strategic, economic, social and security policies for Australia in this age of populism? So firstly, uh, thank you, Michelle, for coming along. It's a pleasure. First, I'd like to ask about governing populism and reform. Based on your your long experience of time in uh, the political world, is it actually harder now to govern and to pursue a reform agenda? Yes, I think it is harder these days, and I think there are a number of reasons why this is so. Firstly, a lot of the low-hanging fruit has been picked when you talk about the reform agenda. Many things have been done by governments on both sides of politics. So there's a bit less uh, clear about what should be done, what needs to be done now, and that means that uh, reform is more contested and more difficult. Also, in the past, there were stronger pressures to do things. For example, if you look at the 80s and what the Hawke government did, there were international forces which were really pressing on Australia to open up its economy. And so that necessity helped the government argue its case, get support. Also, these days, we see a very high level of distrust in the electorate. There's a belief that uh, politicians really aren't necessarily acting for the public good. People don't have a great faith either in their political leadership or in the political process. Now, there's been a decline in trust for decades, But I think that um, if you compare, say, the 80s, even though this decline started before then, but if you compare the 80s with now, that distrust makes uh, pursuing a reform agenda more difficult. Another factor is that in recent years, we've seen a a minority Labor government under Julia Gillard, and now you have a government with only a tiny majority. And that makes it more difficult to make bold decisions. It means that leaders live from one pole to the next. They haven't felt secure, and a leader who doesn't feel secure is uh, a leader who tends to shy away from really tough reforms where uh, you could go through a hard period before the community sees the benefits. He or she is more likely to go for the Uh, band-aid solutions and also these periods of um, governments and oppositions being very close means that you get 
hyperpartisanship. And this is part also of the permanent election campaign, which is a feature of modern politics. It means that um, leaders, opposing leaders, are out campaigning, not just around election time or even the year before an election, but when one election finishes, they're hitting the campaign trail and they're never getting off it until the next one. And that uh, is not uh, easy for a reforming uh, situation. Bob Hawke and John Howard were able to introduce major structural reforms and in effect they were consistently voted back in mm. while doing mm. so. But to what extent was Whitlam and John Hewson, what extent were they four guys right. that enabled them <clears throat> to introduce the reforms? Well, if we take Whitlam and Hawke first, I think that their reform programs were very different in a way. There was overlap, but basically what Whitlam was about was a uh, social community agenda. Uh, he did some tariff reform, and that was very important on an economic front and very uh, con uh, controversial and difficult at the time. But he would be remembered particularly for education, uh, health, cities programs, that environment initiatives, that sort of thing. The Hawke government particularly concentrated on opening up the economy and uh, the economic agenda especially. There was, of course, uh, overlap in an area like health where Whitlam had brought in Medibank and then the Fraser government wound that back and Hawke uh, revisited all that. But I wouldn't see Whitlam as uh, a fall guy for Hawke and it was interesting that just before Labor came in, it was very anxious to uh, differentiate, I'm talking about Hawke Labor, very anxious to differentiate itself from the Whitlam years because Whitlam, of course, was seen as uh, having failed at a political level and there was still a lot of feeling against the Whitlam government. So uh, Labor in the 80s was saying, no, no, we are different, we will do things in a more ordered way. Now, if you're thinking of um, John Howard and uh, Hewson and Fightback and so on, yes, Hewson certainly on the GST was uh, the, the pioneer uh, although, again, if you go back to the 80s, Keating was looking for a, a consumption tax, which there had to be a retreat from. But on uh, in the 90s, Hewson set out that very dramatic program of reform, uh, not just on, on tax, but uh, also industrial relations, which was very close to Howard's heart, uh, industrial relations. And... Uh, spending cuts, big spending cuts he was uh, proposing. And in that case, you could argue, I think, a bit more convincingly that Hewson was the fall guy, but he certainly was a guy without a great deal of political nous. So he didn't realise that you can't really go all out on a reform program 
and not think about the politics, just think that people will accept that. And also it has to be remembered that while John Howard was a reformer and made great strides, of course, in, in terms of tax reform, he did nearly lose that 1998 election. So uh, a few more seats and, and votes going would have been the end of him. So, but in terms of Hawke and, and, and Howard, we, we didn't necessarily, I know this is not completely true, but we didn't necessarily see uh, an attempt to align their policies with populism. There were some, uh, it, seemed, it would seem to be genuine efforts to uh, meet a policy need. Whereas today we sort of seem to have this populism preventing such reforms. So to, to what extent do you think that this populism prevents reforms from happening in the present? Well, I think there are definitely uh, populist pressures that are limiting uh, changes and, of course, we see this particularly in the behaviour of the Senate over the last few years. We had a, a budget in 2014 from the Abbott government which was badly calibrated in political terms but nevertheless did have some uh, reform initiatives that um, could be argued for, but a Senate which at that stage uh, had Clive Palmer's party in it was not going to buy uh, many of these changes and, and so uh, they, they went down or couldn't be presented. One of the problems was that Tony Abbott in the process of bringing in those changes or trying to bring them in, broke promises he'd given in the election campaign. And I think that that underlines the point that if you're going to reform, you have to uh, both make judgments about what the electorate will buy. And these days, as I was saying earlier, they won't buy a great deal. It, it has to be... Uh, fairly moderate, and you have to make sure that you don't make rash promises that you won't do things and then break those promises because that just further alienates people. Right, right. That's an interesting point there about the Senate. So I'd like to move now to Australia's foreign policy issues. And we, we see, I suppose, what is an unusual uh, mix between trade and security. So uh, traditionally, we uh, up until Curtin, of course, we relied on the UK, and then uh, during the Second World War, we became firm allies with the United States. But in recent years, we now have China as our number one trading partner and our number one uh, provider of students for our uh, international education um, industry, so to speak, and, and also tourism. So can we now sustain these traditional security ties with the US while having a meaningful impact on peace and security, for example, in the Indo-Pacific? And can we do this while relying heavily on China as our major trading partner? I think up till now we have been able to, to juggle the commitment to the US and the alliance and the priority that we give to trade with China. Australians have been and remain very committed to the American alliance and I don't think that at this point there is any appetite for a substantial move away from that alliance being quite central in our foreign policy. But also Australia has been very pragmatic over 
many decades now, even when we didn't uh, recognise China, we were selling wheat to China. So the importance of trade has always been to the forefront of the Australian governments. We saw this in a, another example way back after the Second World War when we not long finished fighting the Japanese, then we uh, negotiated a major trade deal with Japan. So the economic factor and the security factor are two uh, lines, if you like, in Australian national interests, which are recognised by governments uh, across the political spectrum. <clears throat> now, what we've got at the moment, however, of course, is a highly uncertain situation with the uh, Trump presidency and the course of American policy in our region being quite uncertain. And I don't think anyone can predict where this will go. And of course, this is uh, part of the bigger issue of the whole tension between uh, the United States and North Korea and the great uncertainty about what could unfold in coming months and years in that relationship. But at the moment, all the signs are that the present government is handling this tension, this uncertainty, by saying we are fully 100% behind America and uh, American policy. We've heard uh, Malcolm Turnbull talk about the ANZUS alliance and its role in evolving events. So uh, at the moment, I think that uh, Australia obviously isn't a major player in what's happening in the region in terms of uh, US relations with Korea, but uh, Australia is sticking with the United States, but also keeping a, a very close or giving a very close priority, strong priority to its economic relationship with uh, with China. So we, we have this outward facing idea of trade and, and security, but what about the different political party approaches? So for example, um, Paul Keating was always talking about the need to engage with uh, Asia and then uh, with Kevin Rudd, Julia Gillard, we started talking about the Asian century. But this tended to differ markedly from the coalition's approach. So for example, John Howard would often say that we are geographically located in Asia, but we are culturally Anglo-American, so to speak. So can these foreign policy issues be dealt with in a bipartisan matter, manner, or does this Asia-not-Asia Asia divide feed into populism and the traditional voting base of the relevant parties? Well, I think because of the imperatives of economics, the overriding uh, feeling on both sides of politics is that we are part of Asia. Now, you do get the sort of cultural arguments that are run sometimes, but the mainstream of these parties know that we have to engage with Asia. Of course, Australia was part of uh, the genesis of APEC, and I think that uh, in terms of where we see our interests, we see our interests very much regionally. Now, obviously, um, off to the side, this doesn't apply particularly to the Hansonites, but 
for the main parties, I think they know we are part of Asia and we engage um, in that context. Right, and we have the division bells going off again in the background. One will be here at the Parliament House. So one, one point I might just um, add to, to sure, that sure. answer, Michael, and that is we see ourselves as part of Asia, uh, but we would like the United States to remain to the maximum extent engaged in the Asia-Pacific region. So uh, there is that link between uh, our placement in Asia, but also our commitment to America and to the alliance. Right, right. Well, I'd like to sort of move closer to home now and talk a bit about uh, infrastructure. And in particular, uh, infrastructure policy. Uh, and what, what sort of interests me at the moment is the role of Infrastructure Australia, but also the problems that are being created around sovereign risk. So to, to give this some sort of uh, context, um, we have Infrastructure Australia is what is arguably an appropriate body to prioritise infrastructure, but infrastructure spending, things like roads particular, in particular keep coming up. But politics seems to get in the way of us getting the infrastructure we need. And I'm just wondering, is Infrastructure Australia an appropriate body to do this prioritising? And could it be a way to remove the... I mean, you can't really remove politics, but can we remove the politicking out of infrastructure structure spending? I think in this case it's always going to be a balance. In theory, the idea of having long-term projects evaluated and recommended by a body at arm's length from government and governments basically being willing to follow the recommendations. It, it obviously sounds the best way to go. In practice, however, infrastructure is often a highly contested political area. For example, between the priority that you give to road compared to the priority to rail, between the, the needs of the cities and the needs of the regions between one route for a, a road between one route for a road over another and so on so uh, it'll be fought over politically at one level this is understandable and maybe even desirable but at another level it can be hugely wasteful so for example when a government changes and it's gone down a fair way along a road to a particular project but the new government says well we always said we disagreed with that project we won't be committed to it and therefore a lot of compensation has to be weighed, has to be paid taxpayers money has to be really squandered because of that um, change of direction and at a smaller level you get all these little infrastructure projects that are used virtually as electoral bribes, and this can distort where money is spent, uh, which can also happen at the level of, of big projects too, that they can be directed to particular electorates, and that leads to irrational policy, it leads to projects that um, are not needed or justified uh, in particular areas. And also, if we think of infrastructure in a wide sense of capital spending, you can have this spending used for a purpose other than the inherent value of the project itself. And one example of this was 
when the uh, Rudd government during the global financial crisis was anxious to get stimulus into the economy and one way that it did this was through building school halls and every school could get a hall. Now it would have been more rational in a construction spending and spending sense to have much more flexibility into that program because in some cases schools didn't need the projects that were undertaken and would have benefited from other projects or maybe no projects at all. The money could have been more rationally used in other community facilities. But because that program was driven by an economic imperative to get things going in the economy as quickly as possible, you had the rational policy objective of the best use of that money somewhat compromised. I think that the schools initiative was interesting because it's hard to speak against schools. But what about things like East West Link or others that involve international companies that then create a, a sort of risk? I mean, one of, one of my concerns is, is what happens if these companies refuse to engage with the Australian government in the future because of the level of risk that it creates? I mean, is, is that a reaction of populism or is it something else? I don't know whether that's populism so much as a difference between a government and an opposition in particular cases over priorities. And I do think that there needs to be some recognition of this problem and if an election is approaching and this is a highly contested area, well, I think that a, a government is unwise to commit to contracts that uh, then a new government might repudiate and, and that leads to uh, huge amounts of, of compensation. So going too far down a, a track when there's uncertainty is really a, a pretty rash financial decision by a government. But they want to lock things in. They want to say, well, you know, we're, we're doing this and they're, again, unwilling to give any ground uh, to a more bipartisan approach. Mm, yeah, and there's, I suppose the NBN is one of these uh, major issues right now because of these differences. But So coming, coming back to the, the main theme of bipartisanship and, and populism then, I'd just like to finish on the idea that Australia's tackled some major structural reform, particularly since 1983, and really continuing up until the introduction of the GST and then slowing with the Australia-US Free Trade Agreement. And uh, former Productivity Commissioner Gary Banks has spoken a lot about that appetite for reform. And I'm just wondering that since the pace of reform has slackened, we've witnessed what is arguably unprecedented instability in our political leadership. But to what extent is this the result of political parties trying to be populist rather than to continue to tackle the major reform issues as Bob Hawke and John Howard suggested? Well, certainly I think that the populism that's uh, been injected into our politics is a significant element here. And also the negativity, because populism thrives in a climate when people are feeling pressed and stressed and when the media, for example, is always 
playing on the negatives and rather than the positives in the system. So this distrust, this negativity is a real inhibitor on reform, which is easier often in a, a more positive climate or perhaps at the other end in, in a climate of, uh, of crisis when something has to be done. But when people are just feeling out of sorts, as it were, as a community, it's, it's not a very good atmosphere for reforms. But also reform does come in waves. So you get a lot of energy behind it. You get a lot of things done quickly. People uh, get caught up in, in the mood of a promise. And then it's as though uh, that whole enthusiasm wears out for a while and maybe there are not pressing things to be done. So you fall into a lull, but then the climate can change, the issues can alter, you can get inspirational leaders at times, like obviously was the case with Whitlam. You know, he caught the public imagination. He said we need to do things. People said, yes, we need to change life in these ways. So I think we shouldn't be pessimistic about the future forever, even if we acknowledge that the present time is is one of those down periods and that the, we don't have the leadership, we don't have the community mood we're not galvanised about the need to do things. Well, I think that's a really wise way to look at uh, what is happening at the moment. So thank you very much for talking with me today, Michelle. Uh, really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, Michael.